I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Mitochondria are often referred to as the powerhouses of the cell, but as scientists gain a greater understanding of these essential organelles, they're coming to discover they play a more expansive role in health and disease. The foundation for the National Institutes of Health named Navdeep Shandel a co-recipient of the 2023 Lurie Prize in Biomedical Sciences for his research that revealed how mitochondria function as signaling organelles that control the body's normal functions and impact diseases, including cancer and inflammation. We spoke to Shandell, professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care and of Biochemistry and Molecular Genetics at the Feinberg School of Medicine, about the state of our understanding of mitochondria. About the state of our understanding of mitochondria, why drug developers are pursuing therapies to treat mitochondria across a broad range of diseases, and the need for a concerted effort to conduct fundamental research to better understand the biology of this organelle. Nav, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Danny. Thanks for the invite. We're going to talk about mitochondria, our changing understanding of the role this organelle plays in health and disease, and what's needed to advance research and drug development in this area. I'd like to take advantage of having you here by beginning with some basic education on mitochondria. For listeners not familiar with mitochondria, can you explain what they are and the function they perform? Uh, this, is a, this is a great question, Danny. The key word here is function. What does a mitochondria do for a cell? And historically, the way most people think about mitochondria is by their popular name, the powerhouse of the cell, because they generate a lot of the energy in the form of ATP. And so we're all very comfortable with mitochondria's powerhouses of the cell. And this was well described in the 20th century. A second function that, that uh, the aficionados of mitochondria are also comfortable with, and, and uh, people will remember this from their textbooks, is that mitochondria also generate metabolites. And these metabolites can help a cell grow and tissues grow. So if you need to make a new DNA or a new uh, lipid, a mitochondria can give you the building blocks for that. Uh, so they're sort of called you know, the powerhouses of the cell because they're giving you energy and metabolites for growth, right? If you want to make muscle, for example. Um, what's happened in the last 25 years, which is not right now in your textbooks, but uh, it will be soon, more and more as we discover this a new role of mitochondria, which is uh, what I've sort of dubbed as mitochondria signaling organelles. In other words, beyond generating just energy in the form of ATP or metabolites for growth, that they're constantly giving out signals uh, to the rest of the cell uh, to keep a homeostasis, you know, to keep a cell alive and healthy. Uh, and when things change, uh, could be the nutritional environment that a cell sees or oxygen environments, or, God forbid, you have uh, oncogenic lesions, in other words, cancer-promoting genes, that the mitochondria responds to that. 
And some of those responses are based on these signals that it releases. And they're generally adaptive, but like many signals, if they go wrong for the rest of the cell, we think that can then trigger the onset of diseases. Hence, mitochondria have evolved from being not only powerhouses, but to being signaling organelles. I think many people may be surprised to learn how many mitochondria they have, not only in in a single cell, but throughout their body and, and how much ATP is processed. Can you give some sense of that? Well, I think it, uh, it, it differs from cell to cell. You know, some cells have a, have a lot of, of mitochondria, your heart, for example. Uh, you know, generally you would say the cells that need a lot of energy, um, uh, the heart, because it contracts a lot, might have a, a full of mitochondria. But then there's other cells uh, like stem cells that don't have as much mitochondria, for example. But, but this is where I think the cataloging of how many mitochondria you have or cataloging of just ATP is perhaps a red herring in the sense that, you know, it's easy to say, oh, this cell has a lot of mitochondria and this cell has less mitochondria number. Therefore, the cell that has more mitochondria must be, you know, really addicted to having a lot of mitochondria. But it turns out uh, that every cell other than your red blood cells have mitochondria and in each one of these cells is doing something uh, interesting and perhaps some, sometimes something unique. So in some cells, you can imagine um, ATP is really the major function. And in some cells, it could be something else that mitochondria are releasing. The foundation, so not one, one, not one size fits all. The foundation for the National Institutes of Health named you a co-recipient of the Lori Prize in Biomedical Sciences in 2023 for your work on mitochondria as signaling organelles that control normal functions throughout the body and play a role in cancer and inflammation. You had touched on this, but I'm wondering if you can expand a bit on on the role they play in that regard. Yeah, so going back to the paradigm of signaling organelles, so uh, one simple thing to think about is beyond just the release of ATP that it gives as a currency of energy for all for the cell to live and survive and do its functions and beyond the release of metabolites when it's growing. Some of these signals are quite interesting. So one of the first signals was, uh, that we thought about and uh, is uh, something that has been around for a long time in evolution, which is hydrogen peroxide, <laughs> right? Um, I think many people think of as, uh, you know, bleach blonde uh, uh, hair, um, but hydrogen peroxide, it turns out to be, uh, a molecule that came up early in evolution and has been harnessed as a signaling molecule uh, to activate uh, genes and, uh, and other processes in the cell. And it's bacteria do it, plants do it, it and mammalian cells do it as well. Uh, and, um, you know, a lot of times when people think of hydrogen peroxide, they think of the word oxidative stress, and this has a negative connotation. And what we know now is that more and more that H2O2 can be a, a beneficial positive signaling molecule oh, uh, controlling cell proliferation, cellular differentiation, immune responses. And if you get rid of that, then the cells actually do worse, right? And so, so that's a, a simple idea of how cells or mitochondria releasing H2O2 as signaling molecules to maintain 
function of a cell and responding to different uh, uh, environments that they may encounter. Now, many of the listeners are like, but wait a second, don't we all take antioxidants? What's that all about? Is an oxidative stress bad? So this is where something uh, interesting has happened in that field. So people like me have argued that H2O2 is a beneficial signaling molecule. So when does H2O2 become like a bad molecule? Well, nothing that we had to do with, uh, but other investigators discovered how H2O2 can become something called lipid peroxide. So instead of hydrogen peroxide, they become lipid peroxide, and then they cause a form of cell death called ferroptosis, right? So this is where it gets nuanced, right? So in other words, in the simple world of oxidative stress or oxidants, which many of your viewers think about because they take antioxidants to suppress those, um, it turns out there's two classes of them. There's H2O2, which is beneficial, harnessed in evolution as a signaling molecule. And there's a bad version, potentially called lipid peroxides, which can then cause tissue degeneration. And so if you want to build the right antioxidants, you want to get rid of the lipid peroxides in a particular disease, but never touch the H2O2 because they're part of the normal responses to stress and homeostasis. That makes sense. One of the peculiar aspects of mitochondria is that they have their own DNA. This is inherited exclusively from the mother. Mitochondria DNA has just 37 genes. What do we know about mitochondrial DNA and the role it plays? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, so, so what, you know, why, you know, early in evolution, as you had this symbiosis between an archaea and an alpha proteobacteria, and that bacteria today is the mitochondria, most of the genes of that bacteria got transferred over uh, to the host, um, but it kept some, right? It kept these 37, in, and many of these uh, encode for what's called the respiratory chain, the, the complexes that respire. Why it held on to it is obviously a big question, probably a difficult one because you can't go back in time and observe it. Um, but I'll just focus on one aspect, Danny, in the interest of time, going back to the signaling paradigm. Again, I had nothing to do with this, but other investigators in the last few years have noticed that mitochondrial DNA, because it's a remnant of a, a bacterial DNA, if it's DNA, which should never be in the cytosol, right? So if you look in a cell, mitochondria are these double membrane organelles, and they enclose as a double-stranded mitochondrial DNA that's sitting inside the mitochondria. If pieces of that get out into the cytoplasm, they activate immune responses. So in other words, their immune sensors, things like sea gas and sting, and they can recognize mitochondrial DNA or mitochondrial RNA by the MAVS uh, pathway. These things then can turn on interferons. In other words, again, this is a signaling paradigm. Instead of of ATP being released or metabolites for growth being released, H2O2, I just told you, is released as a signaling molecule. Mitochondrial DNA and mitochondrial RNA are also themselves can be harnessed as signaling molecules. They have specific immune receptors that they activate, and in downstream of it, they activate pro-inflammatory cytokines like type 1 interferons. So given all these roles they can play, signaling and immune response and and growth, it's not surprising they've been implicated in a broad number of diseases. 
there are a number of rare childhood conditions that are mitochondrial, but I'd like to walk through a few broad areas of disease and have you talk about how well understood the role of mitochondria play in these conditions are. Let's start with cancer, which is an area for which your work has had specific implications. What do we know about mitochondria and cancer? I actually think uh, I'm happy to say this, at least in my mind, is one of the few things I think we understand a lot more. Uh, Maybe some of my colleagues won't appreciate me saying that because, uh, you know, um, you could argue what's left to discover. There's still uh, some things to be discovered in mitochondria and cancer, and I'll touch upon that in a second. But but the field uh, has its roots going back to the 1920s. So in the 1920s, one of the grand figures of mitochondrial biology who received a Nobel Prize in 1931 for the discovery of the enzyme that uses oxygen in our cells, a gentleman named Otto Warburg, and uh, probably one of the most famous mitochondrial scientists in the last 100 years or ever, um, what he noticed was that uh, that tissues, uh, uh, normal tissues versus uh, slices of tumors, uh, just on his bench top in the 20s, they made a lot of lactate. In other words, the tumor cells did. Uh, and he was sort of perplexed. as like, why would they make so much lactate? I mean, our bodies generally are not pumping out lactate unless we're running. Um, and so he sort of surmised that maybe the mitochondria of tumor cells is uh, dysfunctional. So in other words, normal cells have healthy mitochondria and they don't make much lactate. But, you know, we only make lactate if we run out of oxygen. So if we run out of oxygen, our mitochondria don't work as well. And we use glycolysis very heavily. And the byproduct of glycolysis is lactate. And he noticed that these these, uh, tissues that are sitting in well-oxygenated tabletop uh, are making tons of lactate. So he thought their mitochondria must be dysfunctional. And this gave a rise to um, a theory that Warburg had that the way a normal cell becomes tumorigenic, its mitochondria becomes dysfunctional and it makes a lot of lactate. It was very hotly contested. And I would argue that most of us now know that, yes, tumors can make a lot of lactate. It's not, and that's called sometimes the Warburg effects. In other words, you're making lactate and you have a lot of oxygen still around. And, uh, and, uh, uh, but most of us agree it's not because mitochondrial dysfunction. There are other reasons why they're making so much lactate. And in fact, most tumor cells have very healthy mitochondria. Uh, some have uh, rare mutations, uh, but those uh, in mitochondrial uh, proteins and cancer, but those are the, the rare ones, less than 1%. But the vast majority have functional, healthy mitochondria. And what what are they doing? And so we've done a series of experiments genetically, and we can show that when you knock out the respiratory chain, and unlike what Warburg would have predicted, you would have gotten big tumors. In fact, you get very small tumors. And in fact, the tumors that become metastatic also tend to be very heavily dependent on mitochondrial respiratory chain or mitochondrial oxygen consumption. And therefore, if anything, when you inhibit mitochondrial respiration or mitochondrial metabolism, you can diminish tumor growth in multiple mouse models of cancer. And so I think a simple answer is that that tumor cells uh, use mitochondria for their advantage to to generate ATP for survival, to make metabolites for growth. Sometimes even those signaling molecules goes to metastasize. 
Uh, and the real question is, can they be targeted for therapy? And this is where it's been really difficult, Danny. I mean, the reason is, uh, as you've already alluded to, mitochondria are used by every cell type. Is there going to be a therapeutic window where we can target some protein that's specific in cancer, but not in normal cells? And that's been quite difficult. I'll tell you one drug that I had high hopes for, which has failed, which is the anti-diabetic drug metformin. So it was discovered by a biochemist more than 20 years ago that metformin can inhibit a particular uh, part of the respiratory chain in mitochondria. And therefore, metformin can decrease respiration. And in many mouse models, people have shown that metformin can inhibit tumor growth. And we've actually shown using genetics that the way it does it, it inhibits a particular complex called mitochondrial complex one. So you would think that metformin then would work as a pretty good anti-cancer agent. And there was some epidemiology data that suggested there was a link like as a, as a potentially as an anti-cancer drug. And so when they did phase three clinical trials, it failed. And, uh, and I think we have a pretty simple answer for that. It turns out that metformin and only gets into a cell if it has certain transporters. So there are these specific metformin transporters called the organic cation transporters. So typically people who take it for diabetes, it gets into your gut and your liver and your kidney. Most tissues don't have these transporters. And, but same in cancers. Some cancers have these transporters. Some cancer cells don't have them. So if you're doing a clinical trial and you have all comers, you're going to have a large a bunch of patients that'll never even take up the drug because they don't have the transporters. I wish we would do that trial properly by, by stratifying patients which have the transporters and giving them metformin and to inhibit their mitochondria and then combining it with standard of care therapy as opposed to giving it to everybody because many of the tumors probably didn't have enough transporters to get the metformin into the cancer. There's also been growing interest in the role mitochondria play in neurodegenerative diseases. What's known there? It's always the chicken and the egg. Is it cause? Is it a, a causal for the disease or is it the consequence? So anytime you see a tissue degenerate, uh, you can see mitochondria not look so healthy, just their shape, or if you do some functional test, but you don't know if that's just a cause of tissue degeneration. In other words, something else went wrong in those cells and a downstream consequences that the mitochondria also fail, as opposed to where mitochondria is the first thing that fails and then causes the rest of the tissue uh, pathology to occur. I think the best link uh, is probably, aside from primary mitochondrial diseases, where you have mutations in mitochondria and they have a lot of neurological symptoms, I think the best uh, link is in Parkinson's disease, where there's two links to it. One is the environmental toxins that have been linked to Parkinson's, many of them, or virtually all of them, um, uh, impair the respiratory chain. So they, they're mitochondrial toxins. Uh, and then the other one is there's some genetics that are uh, mutations that are linked to mitochondria, like the pink and Parkin mutations. So in other words, proteins that, that uh, uh, are part of the quality control mechanisms of mitochondria, you know, they keep the mitochondria uh, healthy. Um, those, there are mutations in those proteins. But the other ones are, you know, proteins in the lysosomes 
uh, linked to lysosomal function. And there's some connection of lysosomes to mitochondria. And of course, normal aging also decreases Parkinson's uh, sort of the dopaminergic neuronal function. So maybe a combination of some mutations, uh, the normal aging process, along with the toxin that we get exposed to uh, that might be causing mitochondrial dysfunction and causing Parkinson's. I think that's probably one of the better links. And the other ones, it still is an open question, ALS, uh, schizophrenia, and others, where it's been Huntington, where there's some links to mitochondria, but uh, whether it's causal or consequence is uh, one of the big questions. Underfunded, I would say. Well, last one I wanted to ask you about was diabetes. What's what's known about mitochondria and diabetes? Yeah, so um, again, um, you know, depending on the tissue that people think about, um, uh, I'll just keep it simple with my own bias. I've, I've always thought the simplest way to think about diabetes is from at least type 2 diabetes is from your muscle health. You know, if you have muscle or, you know, really healthy muscles that can oxidize your glucose and your fat, in other words, burn your, burn your sugar and burn your fat, uh, you know, you shouldn't really get diabetes. And if your muscle can't do that properly, then the fat gets stored in the liver, uh, which then is a really bad thing. And, or uh, if you can't uh, oxidize your glucose, then you have a lot of glucose in your blood. And of course, that's the definition of diabetes. So having muscle health is very important. And I think many people have observed that there is somewhat, for lack of a better word, mitochondrial dysfunction or the inability to burn glucose or fat very well by the muscle. And so then the fat has to go somewhere so it gets stored in the liver. Uh, as an example, or the glucose never gets into the muscle, so it floats around into your cells and go, goes into other cells where it shouldn't to, to cause some of the symptoms of diabetes. But again, one of the issues there is we could agree perhaps that you might, there's something wrong with your mitochondria, muscle mitochondria, uh, uh, and diabetes, but the question is exactly what that is. And we always, and this applies to the word mitochondrial dysfunction in any diseases. You know, we just talked about Parkinson's, maybe muscle dysfunction. Uh, but what does that mitochondrial dysfunction look like? Is it all the bioenergetic paradigm that we've held on to for so long? In other words, you're not making enough ATP, or is it too much ROS or too little ROS, or is there too much mitochondrial DNA being released to cause inflammation? Uh, is it some other stress responses? Uh, that are not being turned on or chronically that are on all the time, which is never a good thing. So, you know, thinking about mitochondria from beyond the powerhouse, but thinking about them as doing many, many, many other things that I just have alluded to in any given disease, I think is going to be really important going forward. You touched on aging a moment ago, but what happens to mitochondria as we age and What's the potential to restore health? And if we increase the number of mitochondria, is there a promise of rejuvenation or extending healthy years of life? Yeah, so I think this is a a completely wide open question. I think people have been sort of, uh, lack of a better word, sort of sold a, a bag of goods that may or may not be true, which is that mitochondria are completely dysfunctional as we age. And this is why you know, we have all these uh, uh, normal aging consequences. I don't think the evidence is that clear. So first of all, one simple way to think about it is if you bought one of these fancy cars that goes 300 miles an hour or on day one, and maybe 
100 years later, the fastest it goes, even if you try to upkeep it for a variety of reasons, is only 100 miles an hour, right? So the day you're born, you're 300 miles, and by the time you die, let's say at the age of 100, it, uh, it only goes as fast as 100 miles. Well, in the city of Chicago, I can only drive 40 miles an hour, right? In other words, even if you have a 70% decline from the maximal that mitochondria can work, you only use about 10 or 20% of that maximal at any given point, right? To use the car analogy, even if you can go 300 miles, but in the city of Chicago, I can only drive 40 miles an hour. I have excess capacity. So I can have a huge decline in my maximal activity and yet still be relatively healthy and functional. So I'm not completely convinced that the argument is as simple as that. It could be that what's happening, and again, this is an open question, this is completely unsettled, that maybe what's happening as we age is maybe we have mitochondrial DNA being slowly released as, as we age, and that's causing low-level inflammation, right? Or there's low levels of H2O2 that's becoming lipid peroxide and causing ferroptosis, or some other stress response that's being slightly elevated, but it's remaining elevated, which is then causing havoc. Something else about mitochondria might be um, dysfunctional and not simply that they don't have enough uh, ability to generate the energy. I think that uh, that part is not completely convincing. And that's really important because, Danny, if the bet is you should make more mitochondria, uh, uh, then I'm wrong. Then you should make more mitochondria. But I'm not convinced of that if that's the way to go. In fact, at least in worms and in lower organisms, if you decrease mitochondrial function a little bit, it actually makes the worms or flies live longer and healthier. And we think, yeah, yeah, right? So, so here's a crazy thought. Uh, we think that metformin is a mitochondrial complex one weak inhibitor, gets into only a few tissues, and the so-called anti-aging effects of metformin that people are touting might be because it's a mild respiratory chain inhibitor, a mild mitochondrial toxin. Now, that's a radical way of thinking. <laughs> I, don't, I think many of us are slowly thinking that way, right? This is way outside of what's in the popular uh, press or even uh, what many of the biologists think. <laughs> kind of a hormesis, you know, a little bit of a low toxin causing uh, health benefits. By the way, this is the same with uh, antioxidants. I tell people very little evidence that antioxidants are good for you. Yes, if you don't take enough antioxidants, antioxidants from your diet, of course, take antioxidants. But for most of us, this is not clear. Where's the evidence? They failed in most clinical trials because I think it's nuanced, the biology of oxidative stress is why I discussed 20 minutes ago, right? You, you talked a little about the drugability of mitochondria. There are a number of drug companies that are developing therapies that target mitochondria What's known about the drugability? And given that there are unique genes to mitochondria, does that open a, an avenue for, you know, maybe an antisense oligonucleotide or yeah. targeting some way like that? So I think in the primary mitochondrial uh, disease space, uh, you know, eventually advents of gene therapy, CRISPR, all this genetic revolution, uh, I think it's a lot tougher to do it with mitochondria. Uh, uh, DNA mutations and nuclear uh, gene mutations found in like sickle cell, for example. Um, so, but, but you're right, the hope is there. But what's happening right now is 
And I go back to a simple principle that I've always thought about the way to think about modern medicine. Typically, there's a science phase, which is the gain of knowledge. This is followed by applying that knowledge, and that's the engineering phase. Is And applying that knowledge, meaning now you know the basic knowledge, you, make, you get the chemists, the engineers, et cetera, involved, and you start to go after and making small molecules and eventually drugs. And then there's a third phase where the clinicians start to do clinical trials uh, in sophisticated ways and, and try to bring it to the, to the public. Right? So there's sort of three phases. Is, um, unfortunately, and maybe people are not happy hearing this, especially from coming from someone like myself, is I think we've jumped the gun. I think we have skipped the science phase somewhat. Uh, and I get it. People are hurting. People have their loved ones. Uh, people are <laughs> naturally aging. And we want to jump to the engineering phase and sometimes straight to the clinical trials even. Um, and I think there's a lot more to be done on the science phase. If you look at, at all the great dis- things that are happening now, right, those Zempic drugs, right, the class of Zempic, Moderna, Wagovia, the GLP-1 agonist. If you read the history, it's in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, et cetera, uh, it starts in the early 80s at, at Harvard, right? and by, it took almost 20 years where they started to make the first drugs, and then about 10 years ago, the clinical trials. It's been a 40-year journey, right? If you look at immunotherapy, you know, the the the, the from the mid sort of the mid 80s to the late 80s people like Jim Allison and then um, Professor Hunter in Tokyo uh, sorry in, in Kyoto uh, thinking about PD1 the two uh, the two uh, gentlemen uh, who got the Nobel Prize for immunotherapy those are sort of mid to late 80s and and we're reaping the benefits almost 30 years later you can do this with the covid vaccines and the mRNA vaccines the idea of using um, delivering in, uh, RNA or DNA via uh, lipid nanoparticles. And, you know, that's sort of in the late 80s. Is, and then slowly the, uh, the pandemic allowed the advent of these vaccines. So in other words, there's a lag time and where the basic science takes about 20 years, sometimes even longer. Then there's an engineering phase, and then there's a clinical phase. And I think we're very much into the science phase. And I, w- and I would argue that you know, the 20th century was about thinking about mitochondria from the bioenergetic paradigm. I mean, that's still probably correct in many senses, but there's so much more to it that we've done in the last 20 years. And I think we just, in the next 10 years, is just continue to go down that road of, of gaining that basic knowledge. And in some of the ways, it's like in cancer, I think we have have made quite a bit of strides in knowing how mitochondria and cancer work. And many of us have tried to think about how the engineering part of it now can be targeted. And there are companies who are thinking of, of targeting mitochondria specifically in cancer. So maybe for cancer, we're in the engineering phase of mitochondria, but for primary mitochondrial diseases, definitely for the neurological diseases like Parkinson's or ALS, very much in the, in the basic science phase. And then inflammation, autoimmunity, and definitely the normal aging, very much in the science phase. And we shouldn't jump the gun to the engineering phase. One of the challenges is that many people doing this work back into mitochondria, they're studying a, a specific disease and and end up starting to investigate mitochondria's role. They, they can be working in cancer, they can be working in Parkinson's disease or some other area of research. 
how much shared learning is there around mitochondria? And is there a need for greater collaboration across disciplines? What a great question. Uh, you're right. We're all in our silos. Um, you know, if you, if I would, I, I think there's a, a, an immense opportunity for collaboration across many diseases. The reason is, is the way I look at it is, you know, mitochondria, uh, it's like a toolbox, it's like a toolkit. It, so in any given tissue that you're interested in, which then degenerates as a particular disease, so maybe the muscle in diabetes, maybe dopaminergic neurons in Parkinson's, for example, uh, or when, what happens in cancer, yeah, you can t- just sort of look at in any one of those diseases is in a simple way, eh, which is that what does the mitochondria normally do for that cell? And then what happened when the disease happened, right? So is it always basically just generating ATP, maybe? Or is it just generating metabolites for growth, perhaps? Is it releasing mitochondrial DNA sometimes? Does it make a lot of H2O2? Does it turn on certain stress signals? So just doing sort of basic biology in the normal state and seeing how that gets altered in the disease state, the tools that we're going to use, whether it's in the muscle, the brain, et cetera, uh, the tools of metabolism, the tools of inflammation, the tools of stress responses, there's a lot of crosstalk there, right? So I think there's a tremendous opportunity to use similar tools uh, for any given tissue in, in a similar sort of um, set of rules almost uh, to think about it. Now, there are the complex disease like the primary mitochondrial disease, which is due to the mitochondrial mutations. And there it gets much more complicated because so many tissues are being affected all at once, right? Uh, and there you may really need a, a very, um, perhaps even a larger collaborative team could think about uh, the, that problem. It seems like we're still in early days in understanding mitochondria despite ongoing drug development efforts. How much of a need is there for fundamental scientific research in the area, and how concerted an effort is there to do this? I think, uh, like I alluded to, I think there has been a little bit of a jump from the basic science to what I call the engineering phase. Uh, I think there's a lot more to be done about trying to understand what mitochondria are doing in any given cell and how that changes. Uh, The way the NIH funds is based on a particular disease. And it doesn't say there should be, there's not a mitochondrial institute within the National Institute of uh, Health, right? There's a cancer institute. There's a a autoimmunity institute. um, There's a heart, lung, and blood institute. You know, it's almost like based on organs, skin, has one skeletal muscle has one. Um, And so here's an organelle, which we can all agree on has something to do with just about every tissue and how it may go wrong in any given one of those tissues, which may be linked to a particular disease is. And so if you're a mitochondria um, cancer person, you go to the NCI and then you have to compete with other competing ideas of cancer. If you're in a muscle, you go to a muscle study section and the problem there is, I, it's not that I don't think those study sections don't appreciate that mitochondria are important, but they don't all have the expertise. It would be much better if there was a mitochondrial institute uh, or some funding mechanism, private or public, like, where it's basically mitochondria and mitochondria in any disease it could be, but the center is the mitochondria and you have expertise of mitochondria uh, that is evaluating the merit of those ideas and uh, 
and techniques being utilized. And so I would say uh, we, 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 we've had the worst luck, Danny, I think, in the sense that everybody agrees it's very important, but then there's no home for it, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it, it, it permeates through everything. And it, it can't have its own silo, really, you know, because it touches upon everything. And so if you had a broad-based mitochondrial initiative, then you would bring in not only mitochondrial people, but depending on which which aspects you thought were important to fund, if it was neurodegeneration, so you'd bring in experts in neurodegeneration along with experts in mitochondria in a room and come up with some questions and, uh, you know, request for funding announcements and have some big donors give money to that. That That's missing big time. What basic questions need to be answered about mitochondria that we don't know today? Are are there essential research questions that could advance efforts across multiple diseases? Yeah, I think I think uh, one, there's many, but I'll just keep it simple, which I think is almost intuitive, is to take any given cell type and any given tissue in our body and simply ask, what is a mitochondria doing for that tissue or that cell? Why is it there? Is it just ATP and giving it energy or is it doing lots of other different things? And what are the different things? Things And are there any diseases linked to that particular tissue? So like I alluded to, like, you know, as we age, our muscles don't do so well. There's all sorts of muscle-related illnesses. Is that due to mitochondria dysfunction? And if it is due to mitochondrial dysfunction, how do you define dysfunction? Is it just energy or is it many other, other aspects of mitochondria? So doing a systematic like uh, understanding of uh, the functions of mitochondria in, in a particular tissue and how it goes wrong um, to cause pathology in that tissue, I think would, uh, would would then allow you to go to that second phase of engineering because you have so much knowledge and you could start to say, okay, I know what to target and how to fix this. Navdeep Chindel, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care and of Biochemistry and Molecular Genetics at the Feinberg School of Medicine and co-recipient of the 2023 Lurie Prize in Biomedical Sciences. Nav, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.